0: Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show.
1: Hello, listeners. Nathan Collier with you here today, standing in for Jim. Today, we're revisiting one of the most unique interviews we've had here on the podcast, really, uh, throughout the whole time that we've had the podcast. This is a conversation between our Director of Community, Cynthia Loren, and Dr. I. Stephanie Boyce, who is the immediate past president of the Law Society of England and Wales. Uh, she was the first woman and the first person of color elected to that position in the 200-plus year history of, uh, of that society. And this is just one of those episodes that that kind of takes you through the whole journey uh, of someone's career and and all the unique stories. Cynthia and Stephanie talk about diversity. They talk about Stephanie's journey to become president of the Law Society. And then also just sort of general advice for anybody who's in a leadership position. So being a steady voice in leadership during times of change. Stephanie uh, saw the Law Society through the COVID period, a period of immense change throughout the entire industry. And so lots of great stuff in here. I know you'll really enjoy it. So As Jim would say, sit back, chillax, and enjoy the episode.
2: Hello, Stephanie Boyce. Welcome to the Pursuit Podcast. It's a real pleasure and an honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much for making time to speak to me today. Stephanie, I know you've recently completed your tenure As the president of the UK Law Society of England and Wales, we have a number of non-UK audience members listening to today's podcast. So I thought probably a good place to kick off would be by getting you to just briefly explain uh, the role of the Law Society and its relevance to lawyers here in the UK.
0: Well, absolutely. Cynthia, thank you very much for inviting me onto uh, the show So absolutely about eight weeks ago or so, I stepped down as the 177th, the sixth female, the first black and the first person of colour to become president of the Law Society of England and Wales in its almost 200 year history. And the Law Society is the representative body for solicitors in England and Wales, over 218,000 solicitors. And it exists to be the representative body, the voice of
2: solicitors to protect and uphold the rule of law brilliant stuff. I mean, I'm personally really honoured to have you on the podcast, to, to have finally met you, having sort of watched your career for quite some time. Your achievements are phenomenal. And obviously, you've just explained that you've you secured the role as 177th president. Let's just run through some of those stats. So sixth female ever, first person of colour, first black person, only the second in-house solicitor. Um, in almost 50 years to hold the office I've got got one more okay go on (laughs) so far my tenure
0: was 19 months and so I hold the record to the best of our knowledge I also am the longest serving president in the society's history as well
2: wow amazing so talk us through the journey how did you get there how did you become elected into this role
0: Absolutely. So I joined the Law Society Council as a council member in 2013. I'd been involved in the Law Society um, from, or or actively involved in the Law Society from since around about 2004, joining the Council Membership Committee in 2008. And when I was nominated to get onto council in 2013, it meant that I had to step away from uh, the Council Membership Committee, the CMC, to take my position on council. So, Having joined Council in 2013, representing the Women Lawyers Division, I put myself forward for the first time in 2015. And how it works is, as you put yourself forward as Deputy Vice President, nominations were called for at that time before the COVID pandemic in roundabout March. And so you'd put yourself forward. And if you were successfully elected to become DVP, Deputy Vice President, it's then an automatic trajectory to go on to become president. Um, So for the first time, I put myself forward um, and after four attempts, four attempts in 2019,
2: I was successfully elected as deputy vice president. I mean, that that's huge. Why? Why did you try four times? I mean, why didn't you, you know, why did you want it so badly? What was the driving force that meant that you kept going after this?
0: Mm. When I joined council in 2013, we were told many things you just sit there and you observe, you don't say anything for the first, I can't remember how many years it was, I think two, two years, three years. I'd been elected or nominated to council for, I think, a term of four years. So I said, what, you expect me to sit here for two years and say nothing? I thought, (laughs) how ridiculous. I thought, I'm not going to sit here for two years and say nothing. I mean, that would have been, that would have been a record in itself, Cynthia, if I had been (laughs) (laughs) But also... I got tired of not seeing people who sounded like me um, or who looked like me. And I'm not just talking here about the colour of my skin. I'm talking mm. about the fact, as you alluded to, I'm the second in-house solicitor in almost 50 years to become president. Mm. And whilst we knew that the in-house sector was growing and subsequently subsequently would become the fastest growing area of Uh, of our membership and of course in-house for perhaps listeners who don't know is those solicitors or lawyers who go to work in an organisation, a charity, a business as opposed to uh, a practice, a firm uh, in private practice as we would call it here. We knew that area was growing but what I wasn't hearing was that representation, the language that came out of the Law Society was still very much private practice, firms focused. We know From the statistics that if you happen to be female, if you happen to be from um, a minority ethnic background, that you were more likely to go and work in house. But as I say, I didn't hear or see that representation and I wanted to do something about it. And of course, mindful
2: also that there had never been a person of colour in that position. Mm. I mean the representation point is so critical so let's just pull on that thread a little bit more first of all just from an in-house perspective your role the fact that you've secured the role has obviously done a huge amount to raise the visibility um, of in-house lawyers in the profession can you perhaps share something about you know what is unique about being in-house what are the unique challenges how does that differ from being in private practice? But one of the challenges about being in house is that you may be,
0: as often I was in my career, you may be the only legal counsel within that organisation. And thinking about, and you may be the first legal counsel in that organisation because we also went through, again before COVID, we went through uh, this period where lots of businesses wanted to bring their legal advice in house because for a number of reasons, Primarily, for some, it was about cost, but they wanted to bring that advice in-house so they could have it readily available as and when they wanted it. Mm. And they recognised that actually there was a bit more to have an illegal counsel in their business. And of course, Cynthia, we would see the rise of GCs in this country, general councils in this country, and the, the the influence and the significance of their voice. So. For me, lots of organisations where I was the only person in-house and it is, can be, a very lonely place because you don't potentially have the resources, you don't have the individuals that you can say, what do you think about this? You know, the the other colleagues, legal colleagues to draw experience from and so Mm -hmm. forth. We know the challenges are different. You are also running a, you know, you're part of the business, you are part of the strategy. You may be asked to feed into that, But what we weren't seeing also, we weren't seeing a lot of resources from the society or indeed from the SRA, the Solicitors Regulation Authority, who regulate solicitors in England and Wales. And of course, we're told that the SRA will produce guidance for in-house colleagues. And I absolutely welcome that. But it still hasn't materialised. And so the point around trying to get the in-house sector recognize for the value that it that it brings to the profession, it brings to the sector. And we now know on the last figures that we took, 25% of colleagues work in-house, the fastest, fastest growing sector of the solicitor membership in England and Wales. But it's probably a lot higher than that because those statistics were taken a few years back now, I think 2019-2020. That is based on Those that we know about, because lots of practitioners who work in-house may not have a practicing certificate because, for instance, if you work in the government legal department or the criminal prosecution service, the CPS, you may not need a practicing certificate. Most of my career, I've not needed a practicing certificate. In fact, I have one now. You know, I haven't practiced since July 2019 yet i've kept up a practicing certificate. but there are colleagues who work in house who may not factor into those numbers so that number of 25% could be a lot bigger than the 25% i quoted
2: i mean just on so just on this representation point i mean the, the in house part is part of it but then from a diversity perspective i know one of the things that you've you know very famously said is that it's your passion to leave the legal profession more diverse and inclusive than you found it um What do you think you've done to that end as president? Um, You know, beyond just being the president of the Law Society, what are some of the initiatives um, and steps that you've taken to be able to, to support that? Well, absolutely. There was a recognition when I took office. First of all, it was momentous. It was
0: history making. It was change making. I wanted to use the platform that being an office holder, as I was as deputy vice president for an extended period of time because COVID hit, during that time. So instead of 12 months, I served for uh, 15 months. And as vice president, instead of 12 months, I served for five months, Mm. which then gave me the extended period of time of 19 months as president. But I wanted to use my time as an office holder and the platform that would be afforded to me to make a difference. And so I set out very clearly when I became deputy vice president to set out my mission. And as you said, to leave the profession more diverse and inclusive than the one I entered. But I was very clear, I've always been clear, that it must be a shared ambition with each and every one of us playing our part. A recognition, mm-hmm. as somebody asked me when I you know, first mentioned this, they said, well, how are you going to do that? And I said, no, 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 it's not how am I going to do it, it's how are we going to do it? Because that old African proverb that talks about it takes a village to raise a child, and that's exactly how I saw it, that if the profession was going to change, it needed all of us to take responsibility and to play our part in how we were going to move things on. And so fast forward a year later, and we would have the abhorrent events around George Floyd and the subsequent Black Lives Matter movement, and that would absolutely shine a spotlight on some of the structural inequalities that existed within the legal profession. And if I may, particularly the solicitor profession. And so whilst there was lots of people, press, whatever, calling up the Law Society, wanting to speak to the DVP, me, about my experience of institutional racism in the profession, I said, I'm not interested in speaking to the press about my experience. There's plenty of other people who perhaps would be willing to speak about their experience. But what I want to do is I want to talk about change, measurable change, so that we're not just talking about this in years to come, but that when I leave office, we can absolutely see how the dial has moved. And so what I did was I called together because although it was um, I didn't believe it to be a solicitor profession issue. I called together the legal profession, the Bar Council, the Bar Standards Board, Silex, the Solicitors Regulation Authority, sat us all down and said, what are we going to do? How do we move the dial? And we came up with a number of initiatives, but primarily ACT, Achieving Change Together. And that mm. was an umbrella for different initiatives that we would undertake collectively, collaboratively, and individually around different race initiatives. And of course, you saw the Bar Council's initiative around race. You saw the Law Society publish their publication Uh, around the race inclusion report, you know, a number of roundtables. So we spoke initially about race and then we moved on to social mobility. But it was about how we were going to change things. And so the credit is not all mine, but absolutely it was how we were going to move things on. So we haven't solved the problem, uh, Cynthia. We haven't solved the problem. But what we've done is we've started the discussion. And it was quite easy with me there because I said, I'm in a remarkable position to do something. I'm going to be very visible around this. I'm going to role model. I'm going to take the law society to places it's never been. I'm going to ensure the law society is heard. And I'm going to use this remarkable platform to make a difference and to leave behind a legacy.
2: And do you how do you think that we now go from sort of the point of discussion to actual action? You know, how do we as. Private practice lawyers, lawyers in private practice, lawyers within in-house teams, how do we actually achieve change? Because it's it's great that we're talking about it. And for me, you know, certainly post George Floyd, I had the opportunity to share things that I'd never shared about my own experiences as a young black lawyer in, in, in big law. So it's great that we've got the platform, but it does feel like we're still just talking. So what happens now? What comes next? Well, Absolutely. So one of the things we did. So we
0: saw a number of initiatives come out of this. Ten thousand black interns, you know, which the Law Society was a part of, and I was absolutely great to be part of that and work alongside very gifted young people who perhaps otherwise would not have been given the opportunities that this initiative afforded them, and so many other initiatives. And let me be clear: when I became an office holder, deputy vice president, I was absolutely amazed by the number of initiatives that was going on, and I said. How loud and powerful would our voices be if we collectively joined together in chorus? There's lots going on, but I also hear that there's a bit of let, uh, lethargy, you know, going on in terms of, you know, we're tired of talking about mm. race. You know, we need to talk about other things. Um, you know, and of course, the problem hasn't been solved. We've got to continue until there is equality of opportunity, until there is equity. We don't get tired. We shouldn't be tired. We should be thinking about how do we move the table so that, and and in my view, it's not enough to give a diverse colleague a seat at the table if you are not going to allow their voice to be heard. Hmm. So in my view, it's not about bringing people into an organisation because the Law Society's Race for Inclusion Report demonstrated exactly that. But lots of people were coming into the business, but they weren't staying in the businesses. So we have to look at our culture. How inclusive is our culture? How are we making people feel? Do they feel part of our organization once we get them there? How do we keep them there? How do they thrive? How do they grow? How do they progress and want to stay there? So they're absolutely, and as I say, if people can see their part of the role that they play as part of this journey, they are more willing to become involved and become part of the solution. It takes each and every one of us So when we talk about a particular race or or discrimination, whatever, we all should be able to see the part that we play in dismantling those barriers that do not allow people to progress, do not allow them the same opportunity that other colleagues in a majority group have.
2: Yeah. No, no, absolutely, Stephanie. And, and you know, you took on this role in a in an incredibly difficult time. I mean, although it's, you know, afforded you huge opportunities, you were dealing with a pandemic, dealing with all of the outworkings of the Black Lives Matter movement and, and all sorts of other things that were going on at the time. What was the toughest challenge, do you think, for you in undertaking the role? If you could limit I it to the one. Challenge. Yeah. Yeah, I was just about to say. I mean, look,
0: I you know served my 19 months tenure during if somebody had told me that I'd come to this, at the tail end of Brexit, the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, a war in Ukraine, the withdrawal in Afghanistan, the passing of Her Majesty the Queen. Mm. I served under I think it was three Lord Chancellors, two prime ministers, three chief executives of the Law Society and two monarchs. If somebody had told me, uh, you know, and those were lots of the external environments, not, Mm. you know, the internal workings. If somebody had told me that I would have to deal with all of that, I may have, you know, reconsidered and said, well, you know, maybe I'll delay. But the whole point was, is that what these um, events gave me was the absolute opportunity to demonstrate my leadership qualities, which has placed me in good stead. I was the steady hand on the tiller. You know, that uh, took uh, throughout all of these choppy waters, that took the law society through all of this. The difficult challenge for me, I think, was doing lots of this during lockdown in my four walls, because much of the role of president is about influencing. And how do you influence behind a computer screen Hmm. sat in your home with people, perhaps government ministers, opposition, Major stakeholders. How do you influence them if you've never met them? To shake their hand, to look them straight in the eye—you know, dodgy uh, internet <laughs> bandwidth and so forth. You know, how do you do that? I'm in mean, no doubt whatsoever. I'm not a deeply religious person, but you know, um, I give thanks to uh, God Almighty because to give me, to have given me the strength to be able to do all of this and lead the profession as I say through those choppy waters, and for us to come out stronger. And more successful
2: under my tenureship. It's been fascinating to watch, and just um, even your interaction in terms of digital marketing, digital media. You know, are, are there any highlights for you, Stephanie, in the in, in doing the role? Has there been sort of a, a favorite thing um, that you've you've been involved in?
0: Gosh, there's been so many. I, you know, I shared a stage with Hillary Clinton. Oh wow! You know, um, gosh, yeah. You know, I met a number of celebrities. Cynthia, what happened was that I got to go through doors that I didn't even know were there. Mm. I got invited into rooms that I would never have been invited to. And so the highlight, it was my absolute privilege and honor to serve. I gave this role everything. Being deputy vice president, you are remunerated, because yes, you are remunerated, mm. on a five day a month basis. Vice President, 10 days a month, and President, you are expected to do so full time. But can I say, this is more, being President is more, if the job is done correctly, it is more than full time. But when I became Deputy Vice President, it was publicly announced, I think, on the 29th of April. I was working on a project through my consultancy company, Stephanie Boyce Consulting Limited. And by the 14th of May, I thought, oh, my gosh, this is going to be huge. And I gave notice on that project, even though I was not due to be inaugurated as deputy vice president until the 4th of July. But such was the interest from the press and from other people. So for me, this was a once in a lifetime opportunity. And if I was going to do it, I was going to give my utmost and do it well. Um, And, you know, I, I think, Cynthia, judging by the testimonials, the comments and so forth, um, but, you know, I've done a good job.
2: I, I mean, I think, you know, that's a, a resounding yes from all of us that have been seated in the audience watching um, everything that's happened over the last couple of years. And I think, you know, the fact that there is so much interest in you is is testament to that. So, you know, very curiously, I'm, I, I'd like now like to know what's next, you know, what does the future look like for you? Where do you go having done this amazing role and achieved what you've achieved? I would let this,
0: as I said, being president was a remarkable platform. um, And it gave me so many outlets to utilize that platform. I'm taking the time, as I carve out a new role for myself post-presidency, to figure out where I can take that platform. Because leaving the profession more diverse and inclusive, and somebody said to me the other day, I didn't know you were leaving. And I said, I'm not going anywhere. (laughs) You know, My role or my work does not finish just Mm -hmm. because I'm no longer president. There is much more for me to do and to continue to do. So, when I stepped down on the 12th of October, the plan was the three hours to rest, rejuvenate, and reflect. Um, I haven't had much time to do that. But come the 23rd of December, I'm hoping to lay down the laptop and do everything else, <laughs> put my feet up, and enjoy some quality time with my family. Because that's one of the things, you know, when I mentioned about uh, being president, being full time. The sacrifices that you make, you are expected to live away from your family um, because you live in London. You when we could, I traveled quite a bit. Um, you don't necessarily see friends and family all the time. Mm. So re, uh, um reacquainted myself with family and friends and my home um, is something that I'm looking forward to. And I've enjoyed over the last eight weeks. But certainly going forward, uh, there's more yet to come from Steph- I, Stephanie Boyce.
2: Fantastic. Um, Stephanie, I'm curious, what, what keeps you awake at night now? I mean, obviously, I know you're, you're going to have a little rest um, over Christmas, but what, what is it that bothers you? What is it that troubles you, that, that, you know, that you really want to be involved in going forward?
0: I think it was fair to say that when, you know, when I moved, when my family emigrated to America in 1985, America would have a lasting impression upon me, but it pricked my social justice consciousness. Absolutely did it. So lots of social justice work, but also what keeps me awake at night? At the moment, what keeps me awake is the unkindness. There is so much unkindness out there at the moment. Um, And I would like to think, or or would like to hope, that people who have a voice, who have a platform, because that's what got me into doing this work in the first place. I wanted to give the voiceless a voice, but people who already have that voice, already have that platform that instead of using it in such a unkind hostile negative way that they put it to better use Mm. so what keeps me awake is that unkindness Mm. because in a world where you can be anything be kind not my words someone else's Mm. but i've borrowed them because i love it those words
2: yeah yeah Uh, what what's the hardest thing you've ever had to do that you're that you might be willing to share with us on this podcast The hardest thing I've ever had to do. I think the hardest thing I ever had to do was um,
0: be a a postwoman um, because I'm absolutely petrified of dogs.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Tell us more about that. When, When was this? This was early on in your career, was it? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah,
0: when I was building this dream, you know, the journey, and that's the point, that this, your dream, your vision, it's keeping you awake at night and mine did on so many different occasions and still does but if on that journey you will come on to you will find delays you'll find detours um and one of those delays and detours was as a postwoman and i remember cynthia that you know i would first of all scared of dogs but you know being out there at what o'clock in the morning ridiculous hours (laughs) You know, but also, as I was out on my rounds, I would see the train going past, taking, I assumed, people back and forth to London, you know, with their suits, their briefcases and so forth. And I dreamt of that, absolutely dreamt of that. And so I did what I had to do as part of that journey to get me to where I needed to get to. And part of that was being a postwoman. I also worked for British Rail, as it was then. I graduated or I left law school with a humongous amount of debt. No job as a solicitor, qualified as a solicitor, but no job. Mm. And so I cut people's grass, you know, I did people's gardens. So you do what you've got to do. And sometimes that means stepping out of your comfort zone, getting uncomfortable, but doing it because you can see the vision, you can see the purpose in doing so.
2: I mean, truly inspirational and really moving, because actually the journey hasn't been straightforward at all. And you have had to go through some some pretty interesting and unique challenges. Stephanie, for for someone who's, you know, listening, a young person or maybe even a 25 year old Stephanie, what what advice would you give your younger self? Gosh, I'd have to say
0: that the the advice I'd give my younger self is probably different than the advice I'd give somebody else, because I would tell somebody else never to give up. Right. That wasn't so much for me because I kept going. You know because i absolutely believe that every door is open if you push you persevere until something happens Mm. so don't you dare give up um you owe it to yourself you owe it to the world to bring forth the real you to let your little light shine as somebody reminded me the other day about uh that old song that we used to sing well i used to sing Mm -hmm. it in sunday Mm -hmm. school but you know this little light of mine i'm gonna let it shine let your light shine let the world know that you're here, that you, there is something inside of you that you have to offer, that you can be the best. Run your own race, write your own story. Don't listen to, uh, I didn't take advice from other people terribly well, because I found out very early in my career that the advice that people will give you is not necessarily the advice that they will take for themselves. And sometimes through running other people's uh, race, We neglect to run our own race and we remove ourselves from opportunities, from spaces, you know, that may have come out or or served up a different conclusion or solution than what it did for someone else. If that makes Mm. sense, that's in a bit of a muddled way, but I think you get the point Mm. in as much. So it's about never giving up, allow yourself to just be the best version of you and whatever you do, whether you are a cleaner whether you're cutting people's gardens, whether you are whatever you do, do it to the best of your ability. There is a young man who contacts me every so often and he tells me about He keeps in touch with me and he tells me, you know, he's doing this internship, whatever. And he says to me, Stephanie, because I must have told him along the way exactly this. And he says to me, I want you to know that I turn up, immaculately turned out, I turn up on time. And no matter what, because he was because uh, he, he was doing an internship abroad, and he says, no matter
2: what people say to me,
0: I'm on my best behaviour. always.
2: brilliant, brilliant. Stephanie, I'm so so grateful to have had this time with you, and honestly, I'm I'm thrilled that you didn't give up. Like I said, the representation is just phenomenal. For me, I remember hearing the news that you'd you know won the role or secured the role as as um, president for the law society i didn't know the story i didn't know you know i've learned a huge amount today Um, but it's it's brilliant um the achievements are phenomenal and really thank you for everything that you've done and we just we continue to wish you every success i'm i'm personally waiting with bated breath to see what happens next in the i stephanie boyce story um but thank you so much for your time and for sharing your thoughts with us this afternoon
0: thank you very much thank you Thank you listeners for tuning into the show. For more, please subscribe to the show in your favourite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me, Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you.